Hi, I'm Rebecca Onion, a staff writer at Slate. Back in 2015, I co-hosted this podcast with my colleague Jamel Bowie as we explored the history of American slavery. This year, as we commemorate the 400 years since the beginning of American slavery in 1619, we're re-releasing this nine-part series to the public. To learn more about the series and to support more of this work at Slate, please visit slate.com academy. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the third episode of the History of American Slavery, a Slate Academy. My name is Jamel Bowie. I am a Slate staff writer. And my name is Rebecca Onion. I'm Slate's history writer. In each episode, we're looking at a different chapter in the history of slavery in America and starting the conversation with the life of a single person. This episode, we're talking about Elizabeth Freeman. We don't know Elizabeth Freeman's exact birthday, but it was probably in 1742. She was born in Claverack, New York, to enslaved parents whose origins are lost to us. As an infant, she was sold to the magistrate and soldier, John Ashley, in the western Massachusetts town of Sheffield. During her enslaved life, she was known as Bet, no last name. Later, after she had a daughter, she came to be known as Mum Bet. John Ashley's house was a place where people talked with great passion about the new ideas in the air in those revolutionary days, of natural law and the ideas of Locke, Montesquieu, and other Enlightenment philosophers. Attending to Ashley's table, Freeman heard discussions of the Sheffield Resolves, which were a locally published precursor to the Declaration of Independence and of the new Massachusetts Constitution, which was adopted in 1780. Later, she attended a public reading of Jefferson's Declaration in Sheffield. Freeman wondered why these new ideas didn't apply to her own life. She came to the conclusion that her enslavement was wrong under Massachusetts' new laws. After coming into conflict with her mistress one too many times, she left the house and asked an abolition-minded lawyer, Theodore Sedgwick, to help her sue for freedom. Another enslaved servant in the Ashley house joined her suit. Sedgwick brought the case to the county court where it succeeded. It became an important precedent to a later superior court case that established the illegality of slavery in Massachusetts. After winning her suit, Mum Bet took the name Elizabeth Freeman. The Ashleys asked her to come back and serve in their household as a paid servant. She declined. Instead, she worked for the Sedgwicks, the family of her lawyer. She died in 1829 at age 85. Her children inscribed this on her gravestone in the Stockbridge Cemetery. She was born a slave and remained a slave for nearly 30 years. She could neither read nor write, yet in her own sphere she had no superior or equal. She neither wasted time nor property. She never violated a trust nor failed to perform a duty. In every situation of domestic trial, she was the most efficient helper and the tenderest friend. Good mother, farewell. In today's episode, we are talking about the shape of slavery in the revolutionary period, how the Enlightenment ideas that both shaped the revolution and helped found our government also inhibited and encouraged the spread of slavery in the entire United States. And then from there, we'll talk a bit about the ways in which northern and southern states handled slavery in their courts and in their legal systems. Uh, But before we do any of that, we're going to talk a bit about Elizabeth Freeman. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Janelle. So that sounds like a really remarkable life. Indeed. Stories like this always make me wonder, you know, we get a lot of movies about the same kind of person in American history, lots of, you know, movies about founding fathers, series about war heroes, but we don't really get to see uh, very many people like her. And I would love to see her movie. There are so many ins and outs in her life, and there's so much courage and strength. It would be a great subject for a script. Why, Why did you choose this story? And where did you find it? 
You know what's funny is I can't even remember where I came across it. It might actually have been in Doug Edgerton's book, that one of our guests today. But, you know, as soon as I read it, I thought, you know, this is a woman who, although she was you know, nominally on the periphery of life in Massachusetts, she also was absorbing everything around her, thinking about everything that was happening and, uh, you know, put the new ideas that she was finding out about into practice like quickly (laughs) and really changed things for people in Massachusetts. I had certain preconception before I read a lot of the stuff that I read for this series about what happened with slavery during the Revolutionary War and right afterwards. I was always sort of taught the controversy over slavery at the Constitutional Convention. You know, decisions were made by a bunch of white guys in a stuffy room, and they sort of fought over what they were going to put into the charter for the new nation. But the Mumbai case made me think, you know, things were happening on a lot of different levels. There was stuff happening at the local level in people's conversations, like on the street and in their drawing rooms and in the tavern, discussions in state legislatures. People are just talking about it everywhere. And of course, it makes perfect sense that somebody like Mumbet, who's a smart person, <laughs> who's around a lot of smart ideas being discussed, would be thinking about it and talking about it and taking action. Did you have preconceived ideas about what happened with slavery during the war? I don't actually think I had any preconceived idea. I mean, partly there's a product of my own knowledge gaps. My knowledge of slavery really kind of begins after the War of 1812. And I know just from schools, from Uh, high school, that we kind of talked about slavery in the colonial period as almost an afterthought. For me, all of this raises a couple of questions. So first, I wonder if white colonials were concerned about what might happen with the revolution and with the institution of slavery. Because, I mean, imagine you have revolution in the air, people are fighting, you know, all sorts of disruption happen. Uh, And you have, at a certain point, British officials saying, come fight for us and you'll get your freedom. What about those slaves who take that offer seriously? What do colonial, white colonial Americans think about that? How do they react? It also really pinpoints the sort of geographical difference between what it meant to be enslaved in the North and what it meant to be enslaved in the South, because you have these ideas circulating in both places and enslaved people hearing them and thinking about what to do. But the cases are really different and the consequences for what people did in these different places are really different. That is interesting to me as well. That's right. Different people are going to make different kind of calculations about how to achieve their interests. And that that includes both people who own slaves and the enslaved themselves. And I'd sort of like to know more about those calculations and those choices. Yeah, exactly. After the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about how slavery fit into some of the other intellectual discussions that were going on about the rights of man while Elizabeth Freeman was listening and thinking. If you want to write to Rebecca and me about this episode, send us an email at historyacademy at slate.com. And we've launched a private Facebook group just for Academy members. You can find it at facebook.com backslash groups backslash History Academy. And this week, we'd especially love to hear from you about one question that we have. We're thinking of planning an episode about education, the way that slavery is taught in American classrooms. We'd love to hear from you with any memories that you have about the way that slavery was or wasn't taught in your elementary, middle, high school, college classrooms. Um, so please come to facebook.com slash group slash History Academy and talk to us about that there. We're discussing the ideas behind the American Revolution and how they related to slavery. 
And Rebecca, you discussed this with Doug Egerton, a professor of history at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. Doug knows a lot about this subject, and he wrote a really good book called Death or Liberty, African Americans in Revolutionary America. I sort of was thinking about what we discussed in the last episode about Quakers in England and their influence on abolitionism. So I asked Doug whether there was a parallel history of anti-slavery thought in the colonies before the revolution. The first critiques against slavery in the 18th century were largely religious, mostly from the Quakers. Benjamin Lay, who was a, a former resident of the English Caribbean who moved to Philadelphia in the 1730s, began to write essays criticizing slavery simply as a violation of, of the brotherhood of man and you know the love of, of God. That picked up steam by the 1750s. John Woolman, another Quaker living in New Jersey, began to speak against slavery and began to argue that Quakers could not be in good standing if, if they owned their fellow man. Anthony Benizet in Philadelphia did the same thing also in the 1750s when the, the Black Mariner, uh, Alano Equiano, visited Philadelphia uh, during that period. He went to a Quaker uh, meeting house in part because he'd heard that they were the enemies of slavery. It, it was, though, an interesting critique in that while it, it was religious and did, and did emphasize brotherhood of all people, part of it also was simply the Quaker notion that one should live a simple life and therefore having people do labor for you was, was kind of a violation of that principle. So did anyone actually listen to the Quakers? <laughs> you know, this is actually sort of the same story that we heard in the last episode from Adam Hostchild when he talked about the initial reception of the Quakers in England. Doug said the same thing, that Quakers weren't really trusted. <laughs> or, you know, they, weren't, they were a minority. And some of the things that they believed that were unrelated to slavery, for example, they were pacifists, so the French and Indian War, they weren't participating. And so their neighbors were inclined to view them with some skepticism. The idea of Quakers as untrustworthy is hilarious. I know. <laughs> Isn't it, though? <laughs> it doesn't sound right. So there weren't just the Quakers in mm -hmm. uh, 18th century America. There were also Enlightenment philosophers. What uh, were they saying about slavery? So, yeah, this is something that Doug said had a much bigger impact. It was, in fact, the economic critique of slavery that I think had a far greater impact than did, say, the, the Quaker Christian critique Political philosophers like the Baron of Montesquieu, who wrote a very important series of books in the 1740s called The Spirit of the Laws, which was widely read in the colonies. Uh, the, the Baron of Montesquieu was James Madison's favorite political philosopher. People like John Locke, Adam Smith, in his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that also criticized slavery on moral grounds, but, but mostly on economic grounds, that it simply was bad economics. That did have an impact, probably a greater impact, especially outside of Pennsylvania, than did the Quakers, because th these were people who were widely read by the intelligentsia in the colonies, from, from New England you know, down in, into the South. And of course, they weren't reading these books because of their critiques of slavery. They were mostly reading them for ideas on, on how to create more perfect governments. The Verde Montesquieu, of course, is, is the, the sort of the founding father of the idea of checks and balances. But the ideas are there. And so for anyone reading The Spirit of the Laws or The Theory of Moral Sentiments, you couldn't avoid that kind of critique of slavery. And because these were critiques made by people who have enormous standing, who are upper class, I mean, the Baron of Montesquieu was a noble. The critiques are very staid. They're not emotional. They're very logical. It's that kind of critique that really did have an impact. You know, the idea that 
slavery is bad because of bad economics uh, <laughs> suggests that slavery would be okay if there were good economics. But that aside, <laughs> yeah. what does the term bad economics even mean in this period? So it had to do with the nature of people's motivation for participating in economic systems. But Doug explained that in terms of John Locke. For a political philosopher like John Locke, who, of course, was the poster boy of uh, free wage labor, small government getting out of the way of business, for Locke, slavery essentially was, was an antiquated mode of labor organization. It was, it was feudalism alive again in, in the 18th century, it, which is not far wrong. So you know, here, too, there's a critique of slavery that is not being made so much in behalf of the slave, that, that it's simply morally wrong to enslave people and, and steal their labor. Locke's critique, and to a lesser extent, Montesquieu's critique, is simply that it's, it's a clumsy, inefficient, and backward way to organize labor in a modern society, that, that slaves only work hard when they're coerced to do so. The whole idea, of course, behind Locke's free-wage labor theories is that people work for themselves, uh, what he called enlightened self-interest. People will work harder, and therefore, the entire society as a whole will benefit. And so if you have large numbers of slaves who are providing labor only grudgingly, Locke would say that that's a poor way to organize the economy and that will have a very negative effect on the overall prosperity of, of any given society that organizes labor that way. What about the concept of natural rights? How does that fit into all of this? Because I, you know, I know I went to UVA. Um, mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson is our mascot, essentially, and uh, I learned quite a bit about the concept of natural rights, the the language of natural rights, and so how how did that factor into critiques of slavery? Um, and, and did they come from some of the founding fathers themselves who were who were steeped in it? For sure. And what was interesting to me was to hear from Doug how that sort of went hand in hand with these other pragmatic critiques. But yes, he did tell me a little bit about natural rights, and especially about the power of it. The idea of natural rights is that simply there, there were certain things. Uh, Locke, of course, characterized this as life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Thomas Jefferson plagiarized that into life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The idea is simply that, that these things were a given. They, they could not be denied. They could not be infringed upon by other people, by governments, because they were a concept as natural as, as gravity. They, they simply existed. It was a given. I mean, notice what Jefferson says in the Declaration. Um, it's a self-evident truth. Once you announce something is a self-evident truth, then, then there can be no debate, discussion, disagreement. It's self-evident. It simply exists. And so once, once Americans started going down that road to simply say they had natural rights, it becomes very, very hard to say, but that's only for a small segment of the population. You know, America in the 18th century was probably more literate than most places in the in the Western world, but it wasn't especially literate. How would people who couldn't even read have even heard of these concepts or these ideas? Well, that was one of the most interesting things to me about the Mumbet story also was the way that she found out about this stuff. Um, we talked a little bit about how these ideas became public. The discourse of natural rights was something that, that by the 1760s, was the kind of discourse you simply could not get away from. You, you walk into a tavern in Manhattan and, and somebody's standing on top of their chair reading Tom Paine and holding a tankard of ale in the other hand and, and everybody is listening. It's just the kind of talk you literally could not escape from in the, the 15, 20 years before the American Revolution. And of course, everybody who was in these taverns hearing this kind of discourse, it, it, it's not just white men, it's, it's enslaved domestics, it, it's black mariners. And this kind of talk is very empowering. I'm going to push back against Doug a little bit here. There are political philosophers like Charles Mills, 
who do argue, in fact, that they've specifically meant this idea for white men mm. in that blacks were excluded almost by design. But that might be a conversation for a different time. <laughs> Wait, say more about that. Well, what do you mean? Mills argues that in constructing a social contract, the Enlightenment philosophers also kind of construct a related but not parallel racial contract in which ideas mm -hmm. of personhood and individual liberty are talked about in universal terms that are really just meant for white Europeans. And that this racial contract provides the basis for uh, justifying slavery and later for justifying European imperialism. Hmm. I'm going to have to read that. Is this argument that that occurs inside the text or sort of in a parallel set of texts? It, it, his argument is sort of both in that it to some extent occurs within the text, that it, it occurs within other texts by the same author. So like John Locke, his day job was something of an anthropologist. And he thought of mm. uh, Africans as being like a, a lesser being. And so if you merge that in with this thought about natural rights and you have a bit of a contradiction. Like, how do you resolve that contradiction? I um, wish that we were talking to Doug right now because <laughs> I would love to hear what he had to say about that. But we did talk a little bit about the differences between someone like Thomas Paine, his, the way that he argued it, and the way that some of the more elite philosophers like Locke argued it. You know, Doug was saying that Thomas Paine was only one of a number of sort of artisan class people at right. that time, it would have been called who wrote pro-natural rights and then some anti-slavery pamphlets. If elite enlightenment philosophers are sort of more qualified and like specific about what they mean, that these writers were much more sort of... Um, populist. Yeah, populist, exactly. And that those people were the writers who were being read in these taverns that he describes. We have this African Slavery in America pamphlet that Thomas Paine wrote. So this is written in 1774 and published in 1775 in the Pennsylvania Journal and the Weekly Advertiser. What did you think of this? He's very emphatic. Yes. Let's say. It's very, and first of all, you know, if you had asked me um, to identify who wrote this um, and just told me when it was written, I would have guessed Thomas Paine because Thomas Paine is very fond of flowery and emphatic language. And this is here in abundance. But, you know, the, the thing that really stands out to me is, is in fact that abundance. He really denounces slavery in words that would sound familiar to, say, William Garrison. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple decades later, there's a passage where he says, so monstrous is making and keeping them slaves at all, abstracted from the barbarous uses they suffer and the many evils attending the practice, as selling husbands away from wives, children from parents and from each other, in violation of sacred and natural ties, and opening the way for adulteries, incests, and many shocking consequences, for all which the guilty masters must answer to the final judge. That's like fire yeah. and brimstone language. For sure. And that word natural is in there, the sacred and natural ties, the sense that you have as a human these rights right. that are being right. being violated. Yeah, that adultery is an incest thing. Yeah, that surprised me a little bit. And I wonder <laughs> what that's about. I think maybe the implication is that if you lose your sense of who your family is in, in slavery, you lose, you know, I think you see later on that there's a little bit of a concern about that, right. that you might end up with your brother or your sister or whatever without knowing it. <laughs> the thing that you see in this pamphlet for me really was the denouncement of one of the common excuses or apologies for slavery. Quite often, there was an argument that biblically people had enslaved prisoners that they took in war and that that justified to enslave Africans because their enslavement was a result of some kind of conflict that had happened in Africa and that they were being saved basically from being enslaved by their mortal enemies in Africa somewhere. 
And Payne says, no, we're basically lying. (laughs) This isn't like, no, this isn't true at all. He says instead, the managers, the trade themselves and others testify that many of these African nations inhabit fertile countries, are industrious farmers, enjoy plenty and lived quietly averse to war before the Europeans debauched them with liquors and bribing them against one another. That these inoffensive people are brought into slavery by stealing them, tempting kings to sell subjects, which they can have no right to do, and hiring one tribe to war against another in order to catch prisoners. By such wicked and inhuman ways, the English are said to enslave towards 100,000 yearly, of which 30,000 are supposed to die by barbarous treatment in the first year. Besides all that, are slain in the unnatural ways excited to take them. So much innocent blood have the managers and supporters of this inhuman trade to answer for, to the common lord of all. That is, uh, he is legitimately angry as he should be. Yes. He sneaks a sort of an anti-monarchical argument in there, which struck me too, you know, tempting kings to sell subjects, which of course they can have no right to do. It's not just this is wrong, but also how like a king (laughs) to do this. And it harkens back to his belief in natural law, right? That Mm -hmm. kings can't do this because people cannot be sold, just period. Right. It is what it is. Also, there's an anti-English in general (laughs) feeling. (laughs) And of course, there were other nations besides Englishmen who were enslaving people in Africa or participating in that trade. But for Payne, the great thing to say is, (laughs) you know, check out what the English are doing. So to loop this back to Elizabeth Freeman, we we sort of know that she had heard a public reading of the Constitution, Mm -hmm. um, which definitely suggests that some of these ideas were making the rounds in colonial America. What evidence do we have that ideas like Paine's are making their way around the American landscape? One of the best pieces of evidence is the many petitions that enslaved people filed with colonial assemblies and state assemblies. The, the, the years right before the American Revolution, uh, slaves, especially in Massachusetts, began to flood the, the, the colonial assembly with petitions. And, and they, they began uh, very politely asking for, for undefined uh, redress. They, they simply want whites to do something for them. They don't say what it is, but, but the demands escalate very quickly. And they are using natural rights terminology. They've been, if not reading these pamphlets, they've been hearing about these pamphlets. They've been, been you know, listening at their master's dinner table while white elites discuss these concepts. And slaves appropriate these ideas. And it's really quite quite astonishing to think that these are human property, by definition, who are petitioning colonial assemblies for some kind of, of assistance. And as the 1770s goes on, before the actual start of the revolution, the demands become more specific. We want freedom, we want schools, we want rights for our children. Many of these people making these demands are Africans. In some cases, they, they demand the right to return home to Africa. And so it's interesting to watch, just within a few months, the, the way the petitions become more aggressive. And, and more assertive. But I think that's in part because whites in the street in their demands toward Britain are becoming more assertive and more aggressive. Rebecca, we have some of these petitions, don't we? We have four and we'll include a link in the show guide to these. We have four that were submitted to various Massachusetts bodies in the 1770s, three of which I think are either written by a, a literate person or had someone had helped or something. The language is maybe more refined than you would expect. They use the same kind of language, and especially I'm looking at the, quote, petition of a great number of Negroes, unquote, to the Massachusetts House of Representatives in 
1777, which starts out incorporating the Declaration of Independence in a lot of ways. It starts, that your petitioners apprehend that they have, in common with all other men, a natural and unalienable right to that freedom, which the great parent of the universe hath bestowed equally on all mankind, in which they have never forfeited by any compact or agreement whatsoever. But they were unjustly dragged by the cruel hand of power from their dearest friends, and some of them even torn from the embraces of their tender parents, from a populous, pleasant, and plentiful country, in violation of the laws of nature and of nation, and in defiance of all the tender feelings of humanity, brought hither to be sold like beasts of burden, and like them, condemned to slavery for life, among a people professing the mild religion of Jesus, a people not insensible of the sweets of rational freedom, nor without spirit to resent the unjust endeavors of others to reduce them to a state of bondage and subjection. So there's all these references to that language, but also this sort of needle at the hypocrisy. Quite often, the word slavery is used in colonial protests against Britain to say, you know, you would make of us slaves. You know, these petitioners are saying, thank goodness we know that you know about this. Right, right. In fact, in the very next paragraph, the petitioners even say that every principle from which America has acted in the course of her unhappy difficulties with Great Britain pleads stronger than a thousand arguments in favor of your petitioners. They're, They're saying that Look at the war you guys just fought. Our case is way stronger than any case you ever had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a strong argument to us looking at it now. It's hard to imagine. (laughs) It's hard to imagine anyone, you know, sort of saying, oh, oh well, (laughs) you know. Now I'm looking at a petition from a person who's only known as Felix. This petition for freedom that was presented to Thomas Hutchinson, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay in 1773. And he sort of pleads both a low place and poverty in life and also an intention to do better. He says, we have no property, we have no wives and no children, we have no city and no country, but we have a father in heaven and we are determined as far as his grace shall enable us and as far as our degraded, contemptuous life will admit to keep all his commandments, especially will we be obedient to our masters so long as God and his sovereign providence shall suffer us to be holden in bondage. So that was really interesting to me because there was a lot of fear, as we sort of discussed at the top, that there would be rebellions or revolts or that the language that was going around would inspire some kind of violent action, whether it be an uprising or whether it be going to fight with the British. And so Felix is sort of saying, hey, listen to me, I think what you're doing is wrong, but don't worry, like I'll, I won't do anything bad to you, <laughs> but I do want you to redress this wrong. Right. Um, which is an interesting rhetorical stance to take. So this is up north, but most Mm -hmm. of America's colonial slaves are down south. And were southern slaves making these kinds of petitions? Yes, I asked Doug about that. He said it sort of took some different forms. In Charleston, South Carolina, on the eve of the revolution, when, when whites are protesting the Stamp Act, and are talking about liberty and calling themselves uh, the slaves of King George. We have one famous instance where a number of mostly African slaves in, in Charleston began chanting liberty. They liked the concept. So it, it's not that white animosity toward Britain teaches slaves to be unhappy. Slaves, by definition, are always unhappy. But every movement needs someone to come along and, and, and give the movement voice and, and articulate demands. Um, and so, of course, one of the great ironies of the American Revolution is that when whites begin talking about natural rights, call themselves the slaves of King George, it's natural that, that slaves in places like Charleston, which is 61% black at the time, 
would think that, that they deserve liberty, too. If, uh, it's their natural right as well. But Doug said that they didn't necessarily submit petitions to legislatures. So that while there may have been some protest in various ways, including enlisting with the British, the kind of petition that we just read probably wouldn't have come to a legislature. They might try, but, but certainly any slave, especially in, in South Carolina, would understand that, that that is a very good way to get in, into very deep trouble. Slaves can get away with it in Massachusetts because the colony is 97% white. They, they are not terrified of slaves in, in Boston the way they are in Charleston. South Carolina is, at the time, the only colony that has a black majority. And, and so any slave who would be foolish enough to try to submit a petition calling, calling for any small amount of reform would, would be somebody who at the very least would be whipped and, and uh, quite possibly might also simply be, be executed. So it would, it would be folly and slaves, slaves know that. And how did the, the natural rights language translate down south? I mean, obviously, some of the, the loudest American patriots were themselves Southerners. Doug said some interesting things about the way that the idea of natural rights was interpreted by people who owned slaves and wanted to continue to do so. Especially in, in the lower south, which would be Georgia, South Carolina, to a lesser extent, North Carolina. Uh, Florida, of course, remained in, in Spanish hands. Whites don't see the irony of calling themselves slaves of King George and denying freedom to others. Especially in the Lower South, whites embrace the Lockean notion of property rights for planters along the Carolina coast. This is not a revolution of egalitarian rights. This is a revolution of their particular property rights. And that includes, unfortunately, the, the right to own other people as property. And, and so it's kind of the darker side of Lockean theory that takes hold during the American Revolution, the kind of larger notion that this is a revolution that will bring about a kind of Republican utopia, government of the people, just really doesn't take hold at all in the Lower South. It just has no resonance at all. That is really fascinating. And it seems like you can almost see the seeds here of sectional conflict, not a few generations later. You most certainly can. Okay, we have all these conversations happening. And all these conversations are spurring action, and all this action isn't just happening on the level of individual slaves and individual slave owners. It is happening in legislators. It's happening on the level of law. And so when we get back to you after this short break, we will be looking at the ways the laws change and the arguments about law that happened during this period. You can read an excerpt from Douglas Edgerton's book, Death or Liberty? African Americans and Revolutionary America as part of the Slate Academy. Find the link in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider joining Slate Plus. Slate Plus members help to support projects like this series, and they get benefits like ad-free podcasts and bonus episodes. In fact, Slate Plus members even get two additional episodes of this very podcast series. To listen to those and support Slate, Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash academy. Before the break, we talked about Elizabeth Freeman and all the conversations about natural rights and how they impacted individual slaves and inspired groups of them to petition for their freedom. Now we're going to look at the laws. How did the laws change? What were the conversations and arguments among lawmakers and other policy people about the laws? I spoke with Emily Blank, who teaches at Rowan University. And she has written a book that is about the way that different states dealt with changing the laws around slavery or conflicting laws around slavery. By the way, I should mention that she's such a fan of Elizabeth Freeman 
that her email address is mumbet. (laughs) (laughs) So she seemed like a good person to talk to about this. The first thing I asked Emily was about the cases that challenged enslavement before Elizabeth Freeman. So she wasn't the first person to think of making mounting a legal challenge to her own enslavement. Before the American Revolution, there are almost no cases that are challenging enslavement except in Massachusetts. These cases are called freedom suits, where a slave sues their master for freedom. The first one is super early. It's in 1701. Adam um, sues his master, John Saffin. They'd made an agreement that Adam could earn money and pay for his freedom. And then when the time came, Saffin decided not to free him. And one of the significant things that came out of this was that the judge in the case, who was Samuel Sewell, incidentally, he's the same person who presided over the Salem witch trials, but he wrote the first anti-slavery statement by a government official, I think probably in the history. <laughs> um, and he basically talked about why slavery is bad and what, what are some of the bad things about slavery in response to this case. And then after Adam, between 1701 and the beginning of the American Revolution in 1776, there's more than 24 cases in Massachusetts. Now, these cases were really about the illegal enslavement of one person, an individual. So, uh, Jenny Slew sued because she, her mother was a free woman in 1765. There are a lot of others like Adam who sued that he had an agreement to pay for his emancipation. And then when the time came, the owner refused to free the enslaved person. There's a lot of cases like that. And those cases are really interesting because they would never hold water in any other traditional kind of slave regime. Because in order to sue on the basis of paying for your freedom, it understands that you can own property and that you can have a contract. And Massachusetts was, and New England in general, uh, were unusual in that they would recognize those rights in a slave. These cases uh, just dealt with individual people, but did they change the law at all? No, because these were just one person saying, no, I think based on the law that exists, I should not be enslaved. There were a few cases before the revolutionary period that tried to argue that enslavement was against the fundamental law. One was successful, but one wasn't, but neither changed the law because actually like Elizabeth Freeman's case, they were argued in county courts. And Elizabeth ended up having more impact because she was used as a precedent for the higher court. So I I want to ask Emily what made Elizabeth Freeman's case different, what had changed so that she was able to succeed with this kind of broad argument that had to do with the rightness of the law. The main thing that's different is that the state constitutions passed in 1780 and that slavery is de facto dying in Massachusetts. The state constitution is passed with a statement of rights that asserts that all men are born free and equal. That is paired with this idea of the revolution and the ideas in the Declaration of Independence that really transform the way a lot of people are seeing slavery and seeing whether it belongs in the new Massachusetts or the new United States. Many people in Massachusetts start getting this idea that it doesn't fit into the American experiment. And generally, the patriots, you know, the the people that we think of as leaders of the American Revolution, they do not pay attention to slavery before the American Revolution and during the main parts of the war. But once the war starts winding down, we see more attention being brought towards the issue of slavery, in part because I think it's bubbling up from the bottom. And the other thing that we have to take into consideration that changes is that 
the economy of Massachusetts was damaged really badly by the war. And so there's a lot of competition with white workers for jobs. So there's just this general sense that slavery just does not fit in our society very well. Those are sort of the larger sort of societal changes. Elizabeth's case is really important and interesting because she was one of the first people to sue just on the basis of the Constitution. But we should say that it was actually a later case, the Quack Walker case, that went to a superior court and finally made it so that courts in Massachusetts would no longer recognize slavery. What would have happened to Elizabeth Freeman's lawsuit if she had lived further south in some place like South Carolina? It probably would nev- never have even gotten off the ground. So in a s- traditional slave society like South Carolina, slaves have almost no legal rights. Between the state and the master, they had the ability to control almost all aspects of the slave's life. The only places they had any protections would be in terms of their life. You technically cannot murder a slave. They offered basic living standards, so a master must feed and house their slaves. Those are the basic rights that were legally offered to slaves in a traditional society. They had no standing in court. They could only testify against another slave. If that other slave was being found guilty for something, they could not testify against a white person. They could not bring a case up for themselves. They could sue for their freedom, and a white person could represent them to sue for their freedom. And there are four cases in South Carolina uh, during the Revolutionary Period where slaves sued their masters for freedom through a white representative. In the worst case, the judge decided to just own the slave himself, since it wasn't clear the person who was claiming to own them owned them. A little bit of a judicial dictatorship, but they didn't win any of those cases. Massachusetts developed differently. First of all, it never relied on slavery. That's the way that South Carolina does, right? South Carolina, their entire economy is based on slavery. Massachusetts is a pretty peripheral part of their economy. And this allowed them to be more lenient and more open. Was Massachusetts uh, exceptional in that regard? There are a lot of different ways that the northern states tried to either outlaw slavery through the courts or through legislatures. Well, Pennsylvania is always the most radical in this situation, you know, Massachusetts could not get a legislative law through, right? Which really is the stamp of a popular movement, right? Because you have to get representatives of the people to pass a law. And Massachusetts tried and they failed. And in large part, I think they failed because John Adams told the legislators they can't pass this law to end slavery because it wouldn't look good on the national level. But it was very hard for Massachusetts to really get this on a popular level passed through a legislative body. But Pennsylvania was able to because of their big Quaker population. And the Quakers had been on the record, some of the local Quakers, for over 100 years against slavery. And by 1760, all the Quakers in the Pennsylvania area are against slavery. So Pennsylvania is definitely the most radical. They're most radical in almost any element of the American Revolution that there is. Massachusetts probably comes pretty close behind there. All the states that we consider the northern states look at it except for New Jersey and to a certain extent New York. New York gets an anti-slavery society right around this time period, but they don't really think about this legislatively uh, for a little while. And New Jersey doesn't really consider this too much except for some Quakers along the Delaware River. But that's because New Jersey is very dependent on agriculture. The rest of the states all explore this idea because of the same reason that the American Revolution was making them 
see a contradiction of owning slaves within this new America. If you're not completely invested in slavery to sort of run your economy, it doesn't seem that big of a challenge to go ahead and free the slaves in order to be morally justified. Of course, most of these northern states are going to pass gradual emancipation acts, which are going to be very slow in the way that they actually free them, but they're always a statement that slavery really doesn't belong in our society. So Emily mentions gradual emancipation acts and, you know, what those were, right, were instead of someone being emancipated or free immediately, the state would say to their owner, from this period to this period, they are an apprentice, they are so, they are so connected to you, but after that period, we'll simply wean you off of them and then they're free. For for children, it would be something like 18 to 21 years from their, from their mm-hmm. childhood to the beginning of their adulthood, you have them and then they're done. And, and it's in, what's interesting is that in the 1850s, Lincoln was sort of a fan of this kind of thing, of compensated emancipation, of, of colonization, of ways to sort of like in the institution of slavery without making it too hard on the slave owners. Yes. Yeah, so that makes me wonder whether Lincoln might not have been looking back at the kinds of legislative actions that northern states took after the Revolutionary War as sort of a model for his thinking on this subject. And this actually was one of the things that surprised me the most about looking into this topic is that in, I'm pretty sure, no case was there a law passed that immediately said everyone is free. States passed gradual emancipation laws, and some states didn't even pass them until much later. Emily mentioned that, for example, New York State passed a Gradual Emancipation Act in 1799, and New Jersey was the last one to pass it in 1804. And then the result of that, you know, with all the different clauses that those acts had, was that there were still slaves in New York in 1827 when the state finally abolished slavery entirely. And in New Jersey, there were actually slaves remaining in slavery by the time of the Civil War, which was kind of amazing to me. Yeah, it's really it's really crazy to think of New Jersey as being a place that had slavery for, you know, its entire antebellum history. Yes, in sort of pockets and places, right? Right. Of the of the northern states, which of them were had the most radical approach towards gradual emancipation? Well, Emily did mention that Pennsylvania, good old Pennsylvania, as always, is a place where there is both an early passage of gradual emancipation in 1780, and then also she mentioned that there was a provision saying that anyone who brought a slave into the state and stayed more than six months, that enslaved person would be considered free. You know, she she mentioned by way of anecdote that you know George when George Washington was president of the U.S. living in Philadelphia, the capital at the time, he had to actually create a rotating schedule so that his various enslaved servants would be rotated out every six months because otherwise he'd be just freeing freeing his servants. Wow, yeah, that's um that's some dedication to slavery from George Washington. Yeah, yeah. you know, for those enslaved people who were freed in the North under gradual emancipation or otherwise. What was life like for them? You know, by the Civil War, there were large or large-ish communities of, of free blacks. It's kind of a darker picture than you might want to hope for. Emily made sure to make clear that in Massachusetts, they couldn't get a popular legislative act passed for emancipation. This was sort of a ju- judicial fiat kind of thing. And there's a popular feeling that they didn't want free black people hanging around. So they yeah. didn't want 
them in their cities. And they especially, as she mentioned, didn't want to be a fugitive slave magnet. So they didn't want Boston to be perceived as a place where a slave could leave a plantation and emerge into a community where they could take cover. And of course, that did happen to some degree, right. <laughs> despite their efforts. You know, she mentioned that in Massachusetts, there'd be lists published in the newspapers of free blacks who were warned out of the city or sort of told to be on their best behavior. What's so interesting about all of this is that you have you have slaves in some sense fighting for their freedom across purposes with the people, I guess, officially, um, air quotes, fighting for their freedom. It's really striking to me to see slaves petitioning freedom fighters for their own freedom. There's also, if you look at the thousands of enslaved people who sort of fled to the English banner when Lord Dunmore in Virginia made a proclamation that if they would come fight for him, then they could have freedom. And a lot of people took him up on that. You know, Doug Egerton had something interesting to say about that. Popular culture and, and movies like Mel Gibson's The Patriots provide the idea that, that all Americans, black, white, Native American, were fighting on the same side for the same purpose. And, and so, while again, the numbers are imprecise, the, the best data suggests that three quarters of uh, the Africans and African Americans um, who picked up a gun during the American Revolution fought for the British side, fought for the side that, that white Americans regarded as the side of oppression. It's not that, that Africans or African Americans in South Carolina had any false notions about the British. They understood that the British still were running the slave empire. They were concerned about being resold into the, the Caribbean islands, Jamaica, Grenada, Barbados, controlled by the British as slave colonies. It simply was that to get their liberty, fighting for the Redcoats was going to be the only option. So it's certainly true that all Americans, regardless of race, everybody wanted freedom and was fighting for the same cause. They were all fighting for liberty. But the great irony is that the majority of blacks fought on the loyalist side because that was their avenue toward freedom. And, and that's what I think Americans today don't want to remember. It, it, it's easier to simplify the story to utterly fictionalize it in, in movies like The Patriot. You, I've, I've actually thought about that um, quite a bit recently, just apropos of conversations I've had with friends. We had mentioned earlier the story of George Washington leaving Pennsylvania with the slaves to make sure that they stayed slaves. And there is a New York Times piece about that. And friends and I talked about this and sort of talked about the irony that Doug uh, touches on, that you have thousands of black Americans um, fighting for the British for freedom and for freedom from an oppression that is far more dire than anything the colonists faced. What, what, what are your thoughts on all of this, Rebecca? I mean, it can be incredibly frustrating to look back at the what we now perceive as the incredible hypocrisy <laughs> of this. And, you know, the petition that we read earlier from the enslaved people who were saying, you know, you, you call yourself slaves, you know, that is almost in a an offense to someone who actually is in, in that condition, almost an offense, more than an offense. And I think it's good to look at those things and be frustrated. And it's bad to look at those things and make a movie like The Patriot. Right. <laughs> and so I think a lot of the issue with looking at this history is that it's just frustrating a lot of the time. Right. There's so much hypocrisy and there's so much willful ununderstanding, I guess, or willful irrationality. But I guess the only thing we can do is talk about it. Right. That's that's a fact. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing we can do is talk about it and to try to understand it both on its own terms and in the terms of the people who experienced it. 
it is not necessarily the case that they saw the hypocritical, though, as we saw, many of them were very uh, clear and very clear eyed on the hypocrisy of their fight for uh, freedom while they live in a place of slavery. That seems like a great place to leave off for now. On the next episode, we'll be talking about slavery in the early republic. And we'll be talking about Joseph Fawcett, who was one of the Hemingses of Monticello and was owned by Thomas Jefferson. We'll be speaking with Annette Gordon-Reed, who wrote an amazing book about the Hemingses of Monticello, and with Heather Andrea Williams, who wrote a book about family separation during slavery and the emotional history of that trauma. And you'll get to hear me tell at least one awkward story about being at UVA and hearing people talk about Sally Hemings. Until then, though, I'm Jamel Bowie. And I'm Rebecca Onion. And this is the History of American Slavery, the Slate Academy. We'll see you soon. You can read an excerpt from Emily Blank's book, Tyrannicide, Forging an American Law of Slavery in Revolutionary South Carolina and Massachusetts, as part of the Slate Academy. Find the link in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy. Want to prepare for episode four of the Academy? You can read ahead. Rebecca and Jamel will talk to Heather Andrea Williams about the brutal ways in which slavery tore families apart and the efforts enslaved families made to reunite. Find an excerpt from Heather's book, Help Me to Find My People, in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy.